Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Gritty Reboot. I am Pedro, live from the Proteo, and my beautiful wife is, of course, Meredith. Uh, you, you hear this sound, guys? That is the sound of a book that I read probably as fast as I've ever read one in my life. Yeah, I, it, uh, like three three days? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And, and the first day, I think I read 25 pages, so that wasn't really a big help. Luckily, the movie we're covering today, Carrie, is one of the shortest Stephen King books around. Yeah. Uh, this paperback version clocks in around 290 pages. Uh, most of the hardcover versions are like 205. So this was the only one I realistically had a chance to read. So I, I tore through that because I love you guys, and I'm also a Stephen King fan a bit. Like, I like Stephen King. I really do. But I, I don't know if I, I love Stephen King. But even that, I've read a lot of his books because they're just out there. Yeah. And, uh, I have not read a single Stephen King property, and I've seen so many of his movies. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think that's why I've read so many, because I've seen so many of the movies over the years. Yeah. And that's something that's always just been around. You know, one of my, some of my favorite movies are Stephen King films. So, you know, like the, the, this guy has had a huge, huge impact on my life, to be perfectly honest. Like creatively, how I think about things. Now I don't have a fear of clowns, but a lot of people do. I know there's other reasons for that, but I'm assuming Tim Curry as Pennywise is a huge reason a lot of people are afraid of clowns. Yeah. Stephen King really is... Only Lovecraft is more important as a horror writer. And Lovecraft was a piece of shit. Yeah, but Lovecraft isn't, he doesn't have like a whole pop culture phenomenon about him. That's very true. That's very true. You know, like they're going to put, they're going to put Stephen King in the Smithsonian because he's that important. Where do you think Lovecraft is? Is he in the Smithsonian? I don't. I don't think you just. First of all, do you just like you just mail an author to the Smithsonian? Do you like here? Here's Stephen King's body. Just throw him in there. I don't think it's a Smithsonian, but I think it's some museum where they have like a bunch of memorabilia. You mean like pop culture? You're talking like the WWE Hall of Fame for writers, is what you're. No, not for writers. Oh, okay. Pop culture. Pop culture. I I think Lovecraft. I I mean, Lovecraft is is pretty influential as well. Yeah, but he's not cool. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, he shouldn't be cool. He was a a racist from the turn of the century, the other century. I know I'm old. Like Stephen King is cool. Well, you know. Well, he's not as cool as he used to be. He's cooler than J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Yeah, he's cooler than J.K. Rowling. Yeah, listen, like Stephen King has only has appeared to only try to do good with most of his fame and fortune. Yeah. Like I don't know a lot of stories of Stephen King going somewhere and being awful to people or you know, being greedy in any way, shape, or form. I've just never heard those stories about it. I've heard the exact opposite. Fans having great experiences meeting him. And not to bash J.K. Rowling, but fuck J.K. Rowling. You know, she has all the money in the world, and she's taking the time to basically be a troll on Twitter. I, I find that weird that Elon Musk, with all the money and the resources in the world, he just wants to be a funny guy on Twitter, and I don't know why. <laughs> you can do so much more than just make jokes and comment about memes on Twitter. But alas, this is a situation sometimes we find ourselves in. It's but, a bro that has too much money. Yeah, I guess that's what, it, when you have too much money, just, you know, because nothing ties you down to the world, like, you know, having to not starve, you just end up pursuing strange and weird whims. Yeah, well, that money. That's true. We have today, Carrie, of course, and this was Stephen King's first book. He wrote this one after basically being encouraged by his wife to continue writing. He was ready to just leave the crap behind and focus on teaching. But she convinced him the story was good and he should follow it up. And so he wrote. She actually, she actually got it out of the trash. Yeah, she did. That's right. She got it out he of the trash. threw it in the trash uh-huh. and she got it out. And while he was away, laid it on his desk. Yeah. And then when he came back and was like, what's this? She was like, I want you to finish it for me. Yeah. And so he did. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. So basically... I mean, the book does pretty well. You know, I, I, it, it's not like a, a million seller, but it, it is, I think, a, it does make the bestseller list. It, it does have some esteem, but nobody really knows who Stephen King is. I know this for a couple of reasons. One, when Brian De Palma was first approached with the story, his first thought was, who the hell is Stephen King? And after that, once he read it, you know, he liked it. He was recommended to by uh, a friend of his who was a writer, said, hey, this is a good book. I, I think it's got some potential and, you know, it's easy to tear through. Obviously, I just did it in 48 hours. So De Palma reads through that, and boom, he likes it, and all of a sudden, the rest is sort of film history. Like, that's how this film sort of came right into being. 
luck, honestly, that you would have this crossing of a great filmmaker, Brian De Palma, and one of the most prolific authors of all time, Stephen King, and they meet right as they're ascending. Brian De Palma is coming off some lower budget fare, and this is his opportunity to make a studio movie for decent money and where he can move up to do something else. That's how the studio system used to work. It went in steps like that. And this was his step. In 1976, we got Carrie, starring Sissy Spacek. Uh, it's got Piper Laurie. We have PJ Souls, Nancy Allen, and I don't remember anybody else in the movie. John Travolta. John Travolta. How could I forget John Travolta yeah. in the movie? So, and his first film, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, he's pretty good. He was Coming just, off a Welcome Back, Carter. Where he played horse? Uh, no, he, I forget who he played in that. Uh, Vinny, it doesn't really Vinny matter. Vinny Barbarino. Yeah, Vinny Barbarino. Horseshack was one of the other I characters. I was like, hey. Yeah, you did the move, but you didn't, you didn't make a noise. <laughs> <laughs> they can't see your moves out here. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there. Even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. So, Carrie's a goddamn classic. Let's just start that right, right off the bat. Everybody loves this movie. It was incredibly influential. It's one of Quentin Tarantino's, I think it is his favorite Stephen King adaptation. It's one of his favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, it is very much beloved. And I, I do want to mention that sort of right off, off the bat. I hadn't seen Carrie, just sit down and watch Carrie in a really long time. And it's one of the things that I love about podcasting and the show that we do is that I have that opportunity to sit down and watch a classic film that I know, but I haven't actually watched and paid attention to yeah, and you were, studied in a long time. You were legit bad-mouthing it before we watched it. Yeah, because you know, I knew it had some cheese in it, and it, it does. It's, it's still there. The cheese yeah. is right in the middle of that yeah. thing. You can't get away from it. A lot of it's aged poorly. The score has some strange moments, but all of it builds up to a beautiful whole, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really detract from the experience. I think I was enamored by the vision of Brian De Palma and the force that like a 70s director could really hold on a movie. Like, yes, Brian De Palma is a crazy person and he is incredibly tough on actors and demands really amazing work from his crew to, for them to go above and beyond, you know, really insane hours. But this is one of those movies that sort of enforces that auteur theory of if you follow the director's vision, you will hit this creative nirvana. And this movie is, is damn near close to that because it's almost pure unfiltered Brian De Palma. And I, I can say, I can gladly say that I love this movie now. I got, now yeah. that I've had a chance to sit down and watch it. I, I've always loved this movie. I've, I, see, I saw it recently, the last year when you were doing football. Oh, okay. I watched it. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good, a good one to catch up yeah. on. Yeah. So uh, let, let's start breaking it down right now. We got the beginning of the movie with... We got uh, our volleyball sequence to open it up. Yeah. A uh, little fun fact about that. Apparently, none of the girls could play volleyball worth a damn. I think they did like 10 takes of them just trying to get it over the goddamn net. So <laughs> apparently, these are the little things you find out when you listen to commentary tracks. And this leads to the shower sequence, which is... Yeah, the infamous... Male gaze all the way. Yeah. You have an incredibly long shot of tits and bush... I mean, all sorts of nudity. And I mean, like, slow motion, romantic kind of music just played right underneath it, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's very dreamy. And, and it, it is shot beautifully, by the way. It really is. The lighting, the cinematography in this movie is excellent. And it really lulls you into a different feeling. Like, the, not necessarily a seedier picture. Like, yes, I mean, it, it is obviously a lot of nudity. We have that music that plays behind it, too, that very... Yeah. Yes, it, yeah, that's good. I like that. It was good. You should just do the whole score <laughs> like that. And yeah, it kind of lulls you into what you think this movie is going to be. And that's one thing that I do appreciate about the horniness of De Palma. Because <laughs> he's a horny director. He really is. Yeah. The way he does this, it leads you into thinking you're watching maybe a seedier, you know, cheap, smutty kind of movie, you know? 
And immediately as you're getting like a young girl, Sissy Spacek, like rubbing her body in the shower and enjoying yeah, the hot like water. Yeah, it's like super like suggestive. Yeah, it very much is. You know, she lifts her leg and, you know, she reaches down to clean in between her legs and comes up with a bloody hand. And immediately we're throwing a fucking nightmare territory. Yeah. De Palma pulls the rug out from underneath us. And we are, oddly enough, right in that shower with Carrie. You know, because after that, we get what is uncommon at the time, a handheld shot right behind Sissy Spacek as she's running through like, oh, I got him dying. Oh, I know. And she's with her period. It, hand. It's so frantic. And uh, women freak out. And I mean, man, obviously, guys aren't going to be like, yeah, I find a period <laughs> hand. You know, that's not something that we're, I mean, some of us are. But that's not, give it out for the boys that got their red wings. Uh, that's not something that is particularly appealing. And, and the way it's all done, like. To just go from dream to nightmare like that is something this movie, it's its a gag this movie does twice, and this first one just sets you up for the brilliant turn later on mm-hmm. during the prom. By the way, I want to mention how long the nudity was. Like, I noticed, like, Nancy Allen came out n- naked, and I was like, she was in RoboCop, right? And I went to double-check that, and I checked the cast list, and I, I checked one of the things, my email, and I looked up, and I was like, oh, this shot's still going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was still nudity on screen. Yeah, it goes on forever. <laughs> yeah, it really does. So it lays it on thick when that turn happens. How did you feel about that whole sequence? Uh, I, obviously, I liked it. I, I actually think the uh, the shot, the whole thing is done really well, yeah. even with the music behind it and sure. everything. Um. I think that uh, Sissy Spacek is a phenomenal actress, and she's showing it right here immediately in this in this scene. She's going after all those girls with the period blood. And yeah, it's so uncomfortable, and she's so awkward. Oh yeah, and she absolutely is. She she just has this otherworldly feel to everything that she does. Yeah, it's like she just doesn't belong in this world. She brilliantly portrays an outsider of our society. You know, easily in a few moments, we understand that about who Carrie is and what she is. And I, I think that's really powerful in the way Spacek attacks the part immediately. When she was preparing for this role, she isolated herself from the cast. Mm. She uh, decorated her dressing room with heavy religious iconography and studied Gustav Dorr's illustrated Bible. She studied the body language of people being stoned by their for their sins. So she's moving like people in those books. Yeah, and, and that's a great place to, to study, actually, because that's something you wouldn't normally get from another actor in this part. Mm-hmm. I think we, we see that later on. And that's when we get uh, Miss Collins. She comes in. She tries to control the situation, and she gets a nice period handprint on her shorts, yeah. her white shorts from Carrie. <laughs> she leads to a funny scene in yeah. the principal's office. Yeah, it really does. It really does. You know, all, all the girls sort of react. A couple kind of calm down and, and realize, like, maybe we went a little hard into this. You see uh, Amy Irving's character, Sue, sort of have that realization a bit, while Chris, Don't played by Nancy down. Allen, yeah, she is like, nah, man, like, you know, plug it up. She's the last one to stop Janie. Mm-hmm. So it, it's you. You already are getting those character lines drawn, and then we move into the principal's office, where the sort of everything sort of gets explained a little bit better. The, the principal who could give a fuck, which is one of the he's things. just so grossed out by yeah, like period. There's a scene where you can see him staring at the period blood, like oh my god, yeah. like he's never seen anything more horrible than a little bit of menstrual blood. He does the great part where he shows all the caring in the world by calling her Cassie three times in a row. Mm-hmm which uh, results in a breakage of a very 1970s ashtray in a school. <laughs> I thought about that right there. I was like, probably had to change that in the remake. <laughs> Been a little bit weird. The principal would have an ashtray on She's a gym teacher and she's smoking. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, that's the 70s. That's what yeah, you it's did. Different. Yeah, you just smoked. You didn't jog. You smoked. You didn't need to jog anywhere. You didn't need calisthenics or exercise. And then after this scene with the principal and everything, we have her leaving. This is where she... De Palma's nephew, she ends up shoving off a bike. Yeah, that's right. She does the look back, and we get the jump cut zoom in. And creepy Carrie, yeah, we Carrie. we get the a, a little touch of the score, uh, which comes in, which is a reference to Psycho. By the way, that's a pretty easy to hear, but it, it was an intentional reference, by the way, because the mm-hmm. original composer Psycho was supposed to work on the movie, so that kind of musical scene was left in. Sadly, he did pass away before the film uh, could start. But I, I think it's a great way to pay tribute to him. I love that musical sting in this one when it hits like that. The kid hits the turf, which I enjoy, actually. I, 
that's a nice bit of 70s cheese mm -hmm. in there. I, I like the way some of the mind effects are played in this one. And this is a, a fun scene as well that really leads into uh, the rest of the film. Because then after, after this, th things continue in our, our sort of strange adventure as she goes home. And yeah. we are introduced to her mother for the first time. Ooh, howdy. Her mother, played by Parker Laurie, after taking a 15-year hiatus from acting, she returns to this movie and she knocks everybody's fucking socks off. Yeah. She is just, you know, I say this a lot, but an absolute force of nature acting-wise. I mean, she just kind of comes in when Sissy Spacek is already killing it, and she comes in and delivers this completely insane performance. At no point is there any doubt in anyone's mind who watches this film from a 10-year-old kid to a 80-year-old man that that woman is not insane. Everyone knows she's crazy from the way Piper Laurie plays her. Yeah. And, I mean, it's really a thing of beauty, the way she rolls in this line. The way, like, she just beats Carrie down and Sissy Space carrying her arms and thing in. She's so beat down by this woman. The way all of this is just put out there and you're able to understand it from the way the dialogue is delivered and from everyone's body language, it really is amazing. And it's something you don't always see in a horror movie at all. And that's another piece of the De Palma touch in this whole sequence. Yeah, because she, the mother puts her in a closet, like locks her in there. Yeah. She makes her atone for her sins of having a period. Yeah, because it's her sin. Even yeah. though, you know, originally, she, like, she was tempted. Carrie comes in, like, you never told me. How could you let that happen to me? It's like, she's really hurt by the whole thing. I want to. And her mother is the only person she trusts, and she doesn't realize, I guess, until Tommy is nice to her, that her mother fucking hates her. <laughs> My mom didn't really tell me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I was horrified. Like, I thought I was, I thought I was dying. Yeah. I was, I had the same experience that Carrie did, basically, yeah. except not in the, you know, being terrorized by. No one, no one threw tampons at you no. while chanting, plug it up. Yeah, nobody yeah. did that. The second, the second lead of RoboCop didn't show up and yell, plug it up at you while throwing Kotex. So, okay. I assumed that, that, that I assumed that she would have. That's interesting to know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, she's dragged in the closet and this is a, a creepy prayer closet, by the way. I enjoyed the design of that closet. I love that. Yeah. And that's not Jesus. And no, no. It's St. Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was my saint for confirmation. Yeah, it was yeah. oof. I know the story. <laughs> yeah. I correct people on that all the time when they like that creepy Jesus. That actually, it's sexy Saint Sebastian is <laughs> who that's supposed to be. <laughs> sexy Saint Sebastian. <laughs> well, all those guys, they got their shirt off and they got like the perfect abs and everything. Jesus and his homeboys, man, they're working out. They were up on the gym when they weren't doing all the apostle stuff. I think they're supposed to look wiry. Are they? Is that the idea? Yeah. Do we value wiriness these days? Well, I think it's because it's back then and pro people didn't eat as well as we yeah. did now. And so people, and they had to like push stones back and forth. So they did. That's all they did were push stones. So they, they had a lot of manual labor that yeah. made them cut. Yeah. And wiry. And wiry like that. Yeah. It's good to know. They need, they need more protein in their diet to build muscle. Yeah. And add mass. Exactly. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. I'm adding mass, but just the mass. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we get, a, like you said, we get a great idea of what her mother as a character is like. Um, what do you think of the split focus shots? Oh, the split diopter lenses. I kind of weirdly hate split diopter shots. They, they just scream like phony to me. And they sort of take me out of like an experience of trying to be in the world with the characters, I guess. Mm -hmm. like, it's something that draws my attention away. Kind of like a reverse dolly zoom. That can take me out of the movie if done poorly. De Palma loves the split diopter. Yeah, he does. He loves the split diopter. And he actually had a ton in this movie. He really did. He had to reel it back. Yeah, he, 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 but still, still quite a bit. I'm sure at some point the editor was like, listen, let's just do a regular shot here instead of this weird diopter shot. I, I don't always care for them, but I've always enjoyed the way De Palma uses them because they're heavy handed. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to be. It's his thing. Yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, it's, it's like the floating shot for Spike Lee or whatever it's supposed to really be called. I've always just called it the floating shot. But, you know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense either, right? That's dumb. But yeah. it's in every movie. And it's, it's his signature. It doesn't really matter. Not everything in a movie has to be 100% literal. Not everything has to be subtle or, you know, downplayed. Like, I'm okay with that. Almost that camera lens just drawing your attention right to it and putting those characters together. Because De Palma loves split screen, as we'll find out later in the finale. And that is sort of a manual, old school split screen. 
I mean, it kind of looks like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's one of the other aspects of it. You know, De Palma, he just loves that split screen. And then we have the the co- we have the the we have the shot with the coach, mm-hmm. and she's laying the law down. Yeah, she does. So she tells the girls they did a shitty thing. Miss Collins is furious about it, and she punishes the girls. And and we start. And this is just old school, like nineteen seventies physical education. So there doesn't appear to be any purpose to the exercises they're doing. They're just kind of like, they're doing like really poor form girly pushups and sit-ups to like the most insane 70s music you've ever heard. And it is another part of this movie's really strange feel, yet somehow works. Yeah. The seeds of Chris's dissension among the other girls is beginning to be sowed. (laughs) (laughs) I think a mouse tried to escape out of your mouth. You're like, eh! (laughs) get him out of there is it five let's move on to something else yeah i I don't think i have anything i i wanted to um, i wanted to add to that sequence but i did want to mention one thing before that is uh i think right before that scene tommy has the scene with the poem and he reads a poem and carrie obviously likes it and says it's beautiful and takes a little ridicule from the class but it's the beginning of their connection that's i think you were getting to with the split diopter shot mm-hmm. we didn't actually mention the like the opening shot that gives us that mm-hmm. but that's what it is it puts the two of them together and tommy is a, a real pure force of good in the movie yeah for all intents and purposes he's a good boyfriend yeah yeah he very much is he wants to make his girlfriend happy so he's willing to go along with this plan here and he treats carrie with nothing but respect mm-hmm. the entire time yeah. So I think after this is when we first get introduced to John Travolta as Billy Nolan. Yeah. Yeah, because that's when Chris leaves and she's upset about this whole thing. And this is a, I want to mention right now, since I just read the book, this is a change from the book. This character is changed to soften him up, and it very much fits John Travolta's skill set. He's very good here. This is a nice early performance by him, by sort of a, a, a dumber guy who is sort of in over his head, but he's willing to do anything for this girl. Yeah. Like that's sort of the vibe that Char- uh, Charlie Burn, uh, that Chris is very much in charge. I'm still thinking Firestarter. John Rainbird's going to show up any minute now. <laughs> so Chris kind of leads him around. We have the, the sort of the BJ scene, right? Yeah. And first of all, the one thing that everybody notes about the BJ sequence is how much Chris is able to keep talking with John Travolta's cock in her mouth. I know. She's talented at that. Yeah. I mean, she's like, I mean, I can't say anything with my thumb in my mouth, but she's having a full conversation with him while she's blowing him. He must have the world's tiniest penis. He's got a little small, like tiny pencil dick. And that's all. That's why he's so mad all the time. (laughs) So she has that. And there's a great little gag at the end of it. You know, she's, she's working him over. And then the very end, she's just like, I hate Carrie White. And Josh Travolta gives the greatest response. Ooh. I just, I love that because it lets you know exactly who his character is. Like he's willing to go whatever Chris wants to do. And if Carrie White's the person they're going to hate, like, all right, fine, whatever. I'll figure it out on the way. Just finish up what you're doing. He does smack her. He does. I mean, I'm not saying he's a good person. There's a lot of smacking in this movie. I I think he was more socially acceptable. Yeah. By the way, Nancy Allen took 29 slaps to the face for that in the movie. Yeah, I did read that. Yeah, she took 29 slaps to the face for that because Brian De Palma is a crazy person. She wanted De Palma wanted Betty Buckley to really slap Nancy Allen because he wanted to get the right reaction from her. She, so she was slapped a total of 30 times. Yeah, yeah. And she later corrected to just 29 in a, a later documentary. Hmm. But, I mean, she's, she, the way she got the shit slipped out. Or I think Bailey always said she only smacked her like, 12 times, but everybody else on set seems to back up the closer to 30 number. That is an insane amount of times to ask, ask your actress to get smacked in the face. But hey, that, you know, that, those are kind of things great directors might ask you to do. That's sort of the danger of working with one. You want to hear a fun fact about Steven Spielberg? Lay it on me. Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma were actually buddies. Basically, they were having a conversation and Steven Spielberg was like, did you get, get enough of that all over you? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I used an old water bottle and the I, I poured water all over myself because it wasn't <laughs> the the lid wasn't on quite properly. <laughs> now I am wet and talking about Carrie, but continue on about Steven Spielberg and, and De Palma. Yeah, they were talking on the phone, and basically De Palma's like, "Why don't you come up here? There are a ton of cute girls." And Spielberg's like, "Sign me up!" So he went on set and. uh 
he asked literally every single girl out. The only one that said yes was Amy Irving. And then they were married in 85, from 85 to 89. Yeah. And they have a son together. They do. And she got half his money. Yeah. She got half his money. That's why she's one of the richest women. <laughs> she was one of the richest women in Hollywood. Cause she got half his estate because she buried him before he was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He's just a struggling filmmaker. He would uh, go on to marry Kate Capshaw from Temple of Doom, where they met there. And I guess all that screaming was like, I'm in love. <laughs> <laughs> I like Amy Irving. She's good here. But then I digress. We, we, we could talk a lot about famous. De Palma was friends with a lot of that film school generation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have basically our, our plot kicking into high gear right after that. We get Sue telling her boyfriend that she wants him to take Carrie to the dance. Yeah. And, and while he's a, a bit hesitant at first, because he wants to go with his girlfriend, he is a good boyfriend. So he does that. And I think it's kind of humorous when he asks Carrie and she's just terrified and doesn't really know how to respond yeah. to him asking her. And I, I love his reaction, the way he plays it. Like, that's not what he expected her to do. Like, he just assumed that she would swoon over him. But that's not really the way it worked out at all. And it, it's just one of those things that, it, another little nice moment of levity in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that it can do really well. And their relationship is always a nice moment of levity in this movie. Because they, they just really have that, that, that nice little chemistry. At least I, I've always thought so. And, you know, he has to ask more than once. He eventually has to go to her house and ask her to follow up, which is a scene that's not in the book, by the way. Yeah. So that's a, a little bit different. Eventually, she does agree to go with him. She does. She does. And then we have the whole scenes of all the girls getting ready and all the guys getting ready. Yeah. And there's a really sort of infamous moment in the middle of this where, like, the boys are talking, Tommy and his friends, and the editor just sped up the footage. He didn't just cut. He just like speeds it up four times, right? Mm -hmm. And they sound like chipmunks. And it goes on for like, what, 15 seconds mm -hmm. before they go back into jump cuts. It lets you know that De Palma's really just throwing anything at the wall. And it's another moment of like the sort of the madness and the feel of this movie is that he's literally skipping past like a boring part. It's a very strange message to send in the middle of the movie, but it just adds entirely to the film's entire vibe. To the mise-en-scene, if you will. It, it really it really does add to it. I like this sequence better than this 2013 parallel. And everything about this scene should be cheesy as hell. But I still found it engaging, oddly enough, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to get at by them making that odd decision. I'm still that's pondering good, about it now. That's good to point out. Yeah, I'm almost trying to think of like... Because it was innocuous to me. Yeah, like what, what's, what that could have meant. Because even in the 70s, that wasn't something you would do. It was strange. And, and you wouldn't just do it to avoid a jump cut because there's a jump cut three seconds later. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it, like I said, we're talking about it now. So that, that's something that it really mentioned. It really just... I guess goes into everything that De Palma brings to this and even what he told his editor to do. So after all of that, we finally get to the point um, where there's a little bit of a confrontation between Carrie and her mother because her mother doesn't want her to go. Obviously the going to the prom would be full of sin. Yes. Yeah. And, and she there, the way the scene is shot, I love it. You have her mother at one side of the table and Carrie at the other. There are two bright, candles between them and this carpet of the last supper mm -hmm. is filling the background behind them and some religious candles. And as Carrie makes her intentions known, her mother throws her tea right in her face and it darkens the two bright candles and only leaves the religious ones leaving the women in silhouette, but Christ still lit. And I, I love the way, like once again, heavy handed, but the things De Palma's doing to let us know the power dynamic and everything in this sequence without having a character flat out say it, I, I'm almost eating up all these moments, just, just chomping it up like popcorn. All these little things De Palma's doing in this movie. And I guess I just never really appreciated it till this viewing. And I wanted to mention that right here. That's a great thing that opens up this powerful sequence where you have a little bit of the shift in the power dynamic between those two women. Mm -hmm. It begins here. After this, we have the girls, they are, they're putting up the decorations in the gym. You have Sue doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing really about the scene, except I wanted to mention one thing. What the fuck is up with 1970s ladders? <laughs> they're up like, what, 40 feet in the air? Yeah. And they're on this rickety chunks of wood that's just holding them up there. I was like, dude, there's two girls on top of that. I was like, that's dangerous as fuck. I guess an, a good oak ladder was the way to go. Can you imagine how heavy that motherfucker yeah. must have been to move? You'd need like four people to move that thing around. 
Do you think the girls would have concocted this whole plan had the gym teacher not punished them? No. No. So They never would have done this. Her attempt to stand up for Carrie angered a girl who's never been told no. Yeah. And that's what catapulted this whole story. The fact that Chris's father spoiled her, which is an element that's not part of this story, but it is part of the book and the, the remake, that, weirdly enough, ended up getting all 76 people in that gymnasium killed. That is what led to this, basically, is the shitty parenting, <laughs> letting yeah. a kid do whatever they want. She couldn't stand being told no, that she couldn't push around the person that everybody pushes around in the school. And because of that, that's what led to all of this goddamn carnage and mayhem and everybody getting killed. You know, her desire to, at all cost humiliate the girl who had nowhere lower to go. And everything goes into high gear because she got raised back up one time. Mm-hmm. You know, she got to feel happiness, and that hammer coming down is what causes Carrie to snap. How do you feel about that scene, the pig blood scene, where they go and they acquire the pig blood? I didn't think it was needed. You didn't think it was needed? Because it's in both films. No. It's in both films. I do like this her orgasmic glee as the hammer is coming down the pig. I guess that's the only reason is to show how sociopathic Chris can be. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think it was needed. You think it was needed? No. I, I think I've, I enjoyed that sequence only for that real reason. This is how much, like you said, she's just getting off on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. You really show her depravity. And that, that, that much I very much like. And I think after that is when, you know, we, we're all past the prompt sequence. And then uh, we have one of my favorite phrases from the whole thing. I can see your dirty pillows. Uh, which always made me laugh, even as a little kid, and still makes me chuckle today. I don't really know why. My maturity level hasn't really risen. Because she goes, red, you're wearing red. And it's like, she's not wearing red. It's obviously she's wearing pink. She fought for that line, by the way. That's the line in the book. And the costume designer changed it to pink. Because he thought Sissy Spacek looked good in pink, and she does. And obviously DePaul was like, oh, well, we need to change the line to have it make sense. And Piper Laurie was like, you do not change that line, sir. And DePaul was like, all right, shit, whatever. Like, he just wasn't going to fight about it. And so she delivers it that way. And Sissy Spacek just on the improv just corrects her to say, like, no, it's... It's pink, mama. It's pink. And I like that idea of where Parker Laurie was coming from is it doesn't matter what color it is. In her head, it's, it's red. red. Yeah, and that, that it's to rouge, me... rouge, it's sex. Yeah, and I, I think... Now, Piper Laurie, the, the legend is that she played everything like it's a comedy. And you can really see that when you watch the movie. But there was some deep pathos into this character. And I think that's a good moment of, she was like, no, don't change it. It doesn't matter what color it is. It's red to her at all times. And I, I, it's another little moment in the acting that I really love. Can you tell that I love this movie? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like breaking down scene by scene, all the great elements that, that make it up. Well, it's like you, you just recently discovered it. Well, cause you know, you watch Carrie as a kid. Like I did. I probably saw it. You know, my mom. Is that the last time you've seen it? No, I definitely seen it in college. Oh, okay. I saw it in college because we did a diploma retrospective. So I saw it then. But, I mean, that was a long time ago, too. I'm getting old. But, yeah, you see as a kid, and that's when you really watch it. So you know the facts. I mean, Carrie is one of the most famous stories that has ever been written. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's very few stories that are really more well-known than that one. It's one of King's most famous ones. So I guess you just never take the time to really re-examine a classic when you just know it's that. And that's what this experience really was for me. It's why I'm excited. Why I love doing the show. Because I get to rediscover that or sometimes find movies that I thought were great that simply aren't. Okay, so we finally get to the prom. We're going to the prom to change the theme of the prom. Yeah. I think Vienna is what the the concept was for the dance in the book. And they changed it to, what is it, Nine of the Stars? Yeah, there's a bunch of stars. In yeah, nine of so. the stars. And yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that because the only reason I know I'll, I'll probably forget it later on. The 2013 films doesn't do what the book did. They do the night of the stars theme as well, mm-hmm. which I thought was very strange for that movie. I have no idea why they changed. I think they thought it would be an easier design. There's a whole story element about why it's Vienna. Mm-hmm. It's completely king and completely unimportant to the narrative of this movie. <laughs> so they changed it to something probably a little more simple that's more traditional, more prom-like. So Because you, you want to understand a lot of visual information very quickly when you're there. And this whole prom sequence is a tour de force for the cinematographer and his team. Uh, we have a number of amazing shots that lead up to this one. And this is a, a real joyous moment for the character, Carrie White. She's, you know, she pushes her mother down with her powers before she leaves, pushing her away. And she's stepping out into her own independence. She's 
She's feeling better. She's not as slouched down. Mm -hmm. And you can see that progression. And over the course of the evening, more and more good things happen for Carrie. And she's a protagonist I think anybody can root for at that moment. Yeah, because at the prom, she's, well, the whole movie, she's basically covered her face with her hair. Yeah. But at the prom, she hasn't. And you yeah. can see her face. You see her face clearly. Yeah. How she feels about everything. She's almost too too pretty to, to play the character that she's supposed to be playing. In, in a way, yes. In the book, Carrie is written as overweight and covered in acne. Yeah. And however, King does write her as being beautiful. People, that she feels beautiful and she is beautiful at the prom. So I think that theme really fits. Is Sissy Spacek, indeed, too traditionally pretty for the part, portrays it really perfectly. So her element of like glamming up, I think it's an appropriate amount. It doesn't mm-hmm. go over the top like maybe some of the other films might do. And her look really is fantastic. I, I, I do. You know, everything about that, that pink dress, or possibly red dress. So we have some, some uh, shenanigans going on. So let's talk about the figure eight shot. Do you know what the figure eight shot is? No. Oh, you don't know what the figure eight shot is? Oh, you're talking about the spinning yeah. one way and spinning another way? Yeah. The so, dizzying shot? No, I'm not talking about that. We're getting to that one in a minute, too. So, let, let, okay, we'll, we'll talk about the spinning shot first. After all these good things happen, she talks to Miss Desargent. I'm sorry. She talks to Miss Collins. Desargent's in the other movie. She talks to Miss Collins, and you know Carrie's confidence is booming, and she finally decides she wants to dance with Tommy. And so we get this whole sequence where we are rotating around Tommy and Carrie as they're dancing. And it's like a four and a half minute long scene. Very long. It starts off kind of slow. Yeah. And then it starts progressing and getting it faster and faster. Yeah. And it's done by having a spinning, they were on a spinning platform. Yeah. And then they just took the camera and went in reverse. Yeah. They they, they were on a turntable spinning and Mm -hmm. then they had the camera on a dolly rig that was in a circle and they were sprinting by the end of the take. And I, I, I do absolutely mean they were running as fast as they fucking could to push that dolly because like the second he'd call cut, the camera operators would pass out. And I, it's a testament to, listen, you weren't, the De Palma wasn't going to just push the act. He's going to push his crew because it's an amazing shot. And the amount of work they had to go in and do it when you just couldn't tell a computer to do that like you do today is so amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, the craftsmanship that went into it, it really is a testament to all that work coming together for a shot like that. And it's beautiful because they're the only two characters in the world that matter. And that's what the shot tells you over and over again. You feel that closeness between them. You're rooting for Carrie. Fuck, I know what's going to happen, and I'm rooting for Carrie. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what makes it, I think, so, so powerful. It really does. The confidence isn't fake. She feels it. When it's time to cast that vote, she does it with a smile. She cast that vote for them to win the prom. And that's when things turn because we get the figure eight shot. And what's the figure eight shot? The figure eight shot is a long, continuous take. It begins with Norma picking up the vote. And she'll take it across the room. She'll pick up all the other votes. She's going to meet up with her boyfriend. And they're going to have a quick bit of conversation. Drop the envelopes down. Kick them underneath the bleachers. Put, take the new envelopes. Hand them to Miss Collins. Walk around. She's going to communicate all in one shot. Still in that same shot. She's going to t- communicate to Chris and Billy underneath the bleacher, underneath the stage that she's done that. And will walk around to see the rope where Norma will leave the frame. And then Sue Snell enters the shot. She's left her house because she just wanted to see the prom, I guess. She sensed it. And in this shot, she's looking out trying to find Carrie, and the camera leaves her again to go straight up on an old school, old school crane, where we go up and up and up till we see the blood. Mm -hmm. And we just pan over until the blood is right in front of the audience. and right. On top of that bloody bucket is Carrie and Tommy. And the camera zooms past it right into them. It's four minutes. It took them all day to shoot that one sequence. How is it a figure eight? Because that's how the sequence goes. Because you begin your focus on Tommy and Carrie. You go around the room. And then you come back and finish with your focus right back on them again. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that, that's what it's known as the figure eight shot. It is a thing of beauty. And there will be a TikTok post about me talking about every single moment in that as I show it on the video. Because I, 
it really is one of those great continuous shots in film. And if you are a film nerd, film buff, you're looking to get into filmmaking, that's a reason to watch this movie, to take a look at the craftsmanship that went into a shot like that. You know, De Palma pissed the studio off big time with it because he wasted a whole day trying to get a couple minutes of film. And that's not how you make a, a low-budget studio production. But he fought for it, and he got it, and it's fucking film history. You know, after this, there is... We take a lot of time, once we do the figure eight shot, to get to the blood. It takes, like I think, like, what, five minutes or something like that? I think that's super, super tension building. Because you're just going back and forth between all these images. You know the blood is there hanging. De Palma's building this pyramid of tension over the next few minutes before the winner is announced and they get up to the stage. Mm -hmm. I love everything about that build. As I was watching it this time, I was like, it's like, it reminded me of Tar conducting a symphony, all these things coming together, leading to this moment as they get announced as the winner. They come up to the stage. There's this dreamlike sequence and this soft filter on the camera. Slow motion. As Carrie is walking up with Tommy to go accept the award. It's so beautiful, the music. And then it's intercut with the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, as you see Chris and they're practically coming in her pants, (laughs) waiting to pull that rope, biting her lip. She so wants it bad. I, I love it. Then it all comes down and all that music, everything in the scene, silent. Yeah. All you hear is the bucket. All you hear is the, just that diegetic sound of the bucket going back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was shocked by the power of it watching it again. I felt like I was watching it for the first time the other day. I really did. I just sat there waiting for the moment to happen. And the bucket comes down and knocks out. Oh, I thought it kills Tommy. It kills Tommy. For years, I thought he was just knocked out. It wasn't until I saw uh, Dead Meat's Kill Count about the video. He canonically dies. Then I read the book where he does clearly die. The movie doesn't really take the time to show that for the most part, but he dies there. The reason De Palma doesn't dwell on that, because it's not important. What is important is Sissy Spacek's face. And the way her eyes widen and you see all the logic, everything that was Carrie White, that sweet girl who was looking forward to this, who was happy, all that is gone. And there is only the rage that's left. The musical cue that hits, it's iconic, and it lets you feel Carrie's rage and anger. They're all gonna laugh at you! They're all gonna laugh at you! They're all gonna laugh at you! She's seeing everybody laughing at her. Even if it's not real, because we see Miss Collins laughing, and that's that's probably not They're happening. Not laughing. Yeah, she, only one person laughs. Yeah, yeah. Only Norma's laughing. Yeah, because she's a trust fucking tra- garbage person. But she sees her worst nightmare mm-hmm. lifted up again, tricked the one time she believed, and it just leads to the rage. She immediately turns the lights red, and the attack begins. Yeah, she electrocutes people. She moves people across the room. She hits people with tables and chairs. Yeah. She's, she's it's a, a full rage. It's a very, it, a it's very a impressive practical sequence. And the way Sissy Spacek commands all the attention and all the carnage by just her mannerisms, her looks, her eyes widening, it is just gorgeous. Like the way she moves through everything. Like you never doubt for a moment she's commanding everything with her mind. And these moments in movies always seem so cheesy when someone's trying to move things with their mind, the look they get on their face or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that is never a problem for a Sissy Spacek. She knows exactly where she has to be deep in that pure rage. And I think it's debatable. Is she in control in that moment? Is she there? Has she just snapped? Is it her powers taking control? I think it's left up to interpretation. Certainly by her mannerisms and the way she acts and the way she acts after. And that's one thing I like. It's a bit ambiguous. Like, is Carrie truly responsible for all that carnage? How is it in the books? She knows. She's smiling. And also in the books, she's not in the prom. She leaves. Hmm. She leaves and locks the doors from the outside and watches the carnage from the windows. Oh, wow. Yeah, she does it that way. And the way De Palma did it was smarter. And all the other adaptations follow that, clearly. Because, I mean, it's the imagery of her in there is a lot better than her just standing outside grinning as they're burning and getting electrocuted. And that does certainly lead to a, a lower body count, though, uh, for this one, because Carrie has to have a way to sort of get out of the building. I think, I think it's 76 souls were lost, is what they say in The Rage, Carrie 2. Uh, 22. 22? Only 22 people died. 
No, it's not. But canonically, in the Rage 2, they say it's 76. Oh, well. Yeah. I that. I got that. From, I got that from the internet. You okay, can't always well, trust the internet. Well, that's probably the number of people that actually died in the movie. But uh, I'm going to go with uh, another reference to Dead Meat. He always has a rule: if a character tells you how many people died in an event, that's the number that died in the event. Don't bother counting. Which, for his job, I understand because that's all he does is count the people that died in a movie. And I will go by his logic in that one. If a canonical sequel is going to say the number dead, then that's fine because we don't know how many people Carrie killed on on the way home. Maybe she saw a busload of nuns and took them out. We don't know. We didn't see that. Maybe maybe it's in the director's cut. She walks through the fire to exit the building, mm-hmm. and I saw a production photo of that. She's like eight feet away from the fire when they do that whole sequence. Wow. They built that whole set because they were going to destroy it because they knew they were going to have a hard time controlling the fire, and they absolutely lost control of the fire. And like one of the last things I got was Sissy Space like walking out of there, and apparently like the second De Palma calls cut, she's like, <laughs> it was that fucking hot. <laughs> she's just leaving the prom, and... She sees Chris and John Travolta. I can't care. Billy. Billy. Yeah, Billy. Billy. Chris and Billy. Yeah, Chris and Billy. And they attempt to to run her over. Mm -hmm. And Carrie looks back at the last second and causing them to run right off the road and flip the car. Yeah. And it explodes instantly as Carrie does another zoom in to blow it up. Yeah. That is the one person you wanted to see get it was Chris. You know, that's obviously the joyful part of a horror movie is watching all the shitty people die. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's oh, one thing we just skipped over is um, uh, Miss Collins actually dies and she was really good to carry yeah. and she gets a particularly brutal death. She is not cut in half, but crushed by a falling backboard, which would be a big, thick wooden backboard. It looks really nasty. Mm-hmm. It really does. It looks awful. And that's a real nasty death. And uh, Chris uh, blows up in the vehicle there. And it's a pretty nice uh, stunt, I will say, even if it is a little cheesy, but it, it is. It's a nice stunt. Old school. They just put a cannon underneath the car to make it flip. Yeah, and then she goes home. Yeah, she goes home, and she is just distraught, destroyed from this whole thing. She wants her mother, and she just takes a bath. Yeah, she tries wants to, comfort. Yeah, she tries to scrub all the blood off of her. You know, this. I mean, the water is completely red as she's in there. I, I like that touch. She comes back down, and she sees her mother, and that's all she wants, you know, is that little comfort and a hug. But you know. she knows that something's wrong because when she gets in the house, all these candles are lit. That's right. It's a Everywhere. fire hazard. Yeah. Everywhere. I it's mean, a fire it's a total hazard. fire hazard. Yeah. So she needs this comfort from her mother. So her mother doesn't give her comfort. Her mother tells her the story of her conception, which Piper Laurie is, oh my God, amazing in this whole thing. Like in a moment where someone, another actor would try to bring all this power and drama she goes completely over the top and talking about <laughs> sex to her daughter, how much she loved it and how sinful it was. It's a, another sort of jarring sequence in this. And then the only moment she attempts to comfort her daughter, she brings her in for a hug. It's not for the hug. It's so she can raise that knife that she's been sharpening mm-hmm. and stab her literally in the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she does this. She goes to try to kill Carrie and Carrie makes a pincushion out of her. Yep. Yeah, she is stabbed and pinned on the wall the same way St. Sebastian is in the closet. And that and she kills her mother, who has a gigantic orgasm as she dies. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not even like not even like trying to pretend that's not what it is. It absolutely is. She's having like this monstrous orgasm as she dies. Ridiculous. It really is. It's insanely over the top, and I love it. <laughs> it's all part of the vibe of this movie, and I'm just down for almost all of it. Basically, Carrie is horrified that she's killed her mother. Yeah. And she takes her mother down and they go into the closet and Carrie collapses the house on them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is, this is something that, that I enjoy is because I don't think Carrie has, she can control her powers to some extent, but at least in, in the De Palma film, I think this is the fate she thinks she deserves. Yeah. Is I, I've always read that, like, like, well, why she just kill herself? I was like, well, I, I think that's what she thinks she deserves to, to go to hell. Like she sets the house on fire and sinks it into the earth because mm-hmm. she thinks that's because that's what her mother always said. That's what she was going to be. And she killed a ton of people, you know, whether she was conscious of it, whether she, you know, was just blinded by rage, you know, whether she enjoyed it either way. That's why I think that it lends a little bit more to she had a moment of that she was out of control. Yeah. Instead of being in control. Yes, she's got her powers and she can control her powers. 
but she was out of control. Yeah. She had a blind rage. Yeah. And I, I think that's a lot of what this film would leave you to believe from the interpretation of it. And especially the way she acts afterwards. In the book, it is very clear. Carrie remembers she has her powers and goes back to kill them all. So she is a lot more complicit in the atrocities that occur. Mm. So that is something that is different from the way the novel portrayed it. I love this movie. I'm glad we got an opportunity to watch it and break it back down again. Because like I said, I ended up enjoying nearly every frame of this sucker. I really did. Yeah, King liked the ending of this movie better than his own book. Yeah, because it, it, the ending to his book is there is the White Commission. They are trying to conclude what happened to the town. Because in the book, the town's destroyed, not just the school. They didn't have the money for that for the diploma film. And at the very end of the book, you see that one of Carrie's like second or third cousins can move marbles with her with her mind. When she's like six or seven. Mm-hmm. So the power has gone on. Because that's one of the, the themes of the book is trying to stop anybody else from having that power. The government wants to say it was a one-time anomaly. And that's not an element the movie cares about at all. You know, clearly none of that is in yeah. there. So the jump scare ending is much, much better. No matter what happens, Sue will never escape the horror of that night. It'll always be with her to her dying day. And the sequel sort of confirms that, weirdly enough. But... She's always going to be haunted by Carrie White. And what is another dream-like sequence? They shoot it with that same soft filter and has that soft music that's back again. And Carrie's grave is the house, and they just put Carrie White rots in hell or burns in hell on the, on the for sale sign of the vacant lot. And I love that. She puts the flowers down, and Carrie grabs her, and she's hysterical, and it's so good. You know, it's a great way to end the movie. It's a horrifying jump scare. It's mm-hmm. one of the better jump scares. Reminds me a lot of the Friday the 13th jump scare, except this is better. And that's the end of this movie. So all I have left are a few facts that I want to go over. All right. Lay lay them on us. All right. After being covered in fake blood, Sissy Spacek would not wash for continuity reasons, which is admirable. Yeah. She slept in bloody clothes for three days straight. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. That's rough. Do do you know on set she had someone run around that would spritz her so she could like lift her Move. arm and stuff like that because she just tightens up it all that i mean it's just syrup so it dries real hard mm-hmm. sissy spacek wasn't considered for the role until her art director uh, husband jack fisk convinced the director otherwise amy irving would have been carrie she got the lesser part of sue yeah yeah because De palma's always talked about he had somebody else in mind and he never really named her and it wasn't until later on i think people said that amy irving was who he did indeed have in mind to play the role yeah uh, he didn't. He he didn't really want Sissy Spacek uh, to play the part at all, and she just came in, knocked his socks off, and he had no choice. I mean, all the producers loved her, and he was like, "No, nah, she's she's Carrie." So that's that's she, the way it went. She put a, a Vaseline in her hair, mm-hmm. and she walked into the interview with a dress that her mom had made her in for middle school. Mm-hmm. Which the fact that she still fit into it is amazing. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Well, she had. Uh, she also she didn't wash her face for like three days. Yeah. Yeah. People were like, ugh. They were sort of horrified by her when she walked in the room. And but it helped her nail the part. So King got the idea for Carrie by working at a laundry. Carrie's mother is based on some of the people that King uh worked with. Also, it's based on two girls King knew in school. One was named Tina White and the other was Sandra Irving. Tina only had one pair of clothes and was mercilessly bullied for it. She wore the same clothes all year round. And when she got new clothes, she was really proud of it, but she still got bullied worse. Sandra's family was very religious. There was a giant cross over their couch. King uh, helped, uh, the mother was a single mom, and he helped her move into the house. And that's how he found this big giant cross over the (laughs) couch. That's cool. I didn't know that. Both girls never made it past 30. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. That's a real shame. Tina killed herself, and Sandra died in her apartment alone from a seizure. Damn. Yeah. Way to bring it down. Yeah. Yeah, Way to bring it down. (laughs) I can bring it up, though. Okay, what do you got? Okay. Stephen King recalls watching the movie on opening night with his wife, Tabitha, when when Carrie's hand reaches from Sue Snell in the end, Two black guys, 230 pounds apiece, were sitting in the front of him, screaming, that's it, that's it. She ain't never going to come be right. (laughs) 
he turned to his wife and said, this is going to be huge. Yeah, yeah. He he was when he went to go see it, he was he looked at the audience. He was like, oh, man, they're, they're not going to dig because movies were showing a double feature. Mm-hmm. And the double feature was, um, I think, a Red Fox movie. So <laughs> he saw the audience. He's like, man, it's just not going to work. And he was so thrilled to see that it was a uni- universal love for this movie. And that is all the facts that I have. I got a couple more for you. All right. So in the shower sequence, early in the movie, when Carrie pulls up the blood, her husband is the one who squirts the blood in her hand. He's standing just outside of frame to do that. Oh. She was butt-ass naked. So he's the one that does that. Uh, Another good fact here about Nancy Allen, who plays Chris in the movie, she was hired as the very last person to audition on the last day. Oh, wow. Yeah. She just came in and they they had like five or six choices. They were going to make a tough decision. And she she nailed it on that one. And De Palma was like, oh, thank God we finally found her. That was another thing. She you know she almost gave up acting and left Los Angeles to go back to New York. And she got the, the, her basically Hail Mary job. And it saved her her acting career. And she would eventually go on to marry Brian De Palma a few years later. Obviously, our normal format is we do two movies or three movies. Uh, the, the original film and the reboot. But today, you know, we've already gone over an hour talking about Carrie and we absolutely love, you know, this, this film. Yeah. So we wanted to spend time to properly break it down because we are going to do a, a two part episode this time only doing Carrie. And next week we're going to be breaking down three different movies. We're going to be talking about Chloe Moretz's 2013 remake, as well as the 1999 film, the rage Carrie two, which is kind of a requel. Very much a, a remake of the same movie while actually talking about the events of the original film. Very strange. Hopefully a lot of fun stuff to break down. Haven't seen it probably since 1999. And then uh, we will talk about the little scene, Angela Bettis uh, playing Carrie in 2002. And this was a TV movie, originally a pilot for a show that didn't get picked up. They turned it into a TV movie. And we're going to take a look at that uh, reboot as well. So we, we will have a pretty stacked show Next week, probably go about an hour as well as we break down all three of those movies. Mm -hmm. Today, we're just going to move straight on to reviews. Yeah, I will say Carrie got a 4.4 user review, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 7.4 on IMDb. And here is the review. It's a one-star review. 7.4 out of 10? You've got to be kidding me. This movie is horrendous. Not to say that Carrie was one of the lesser Stephen King books. They completely raped his creation by this one. As for the main plot, it stands okay, but it doesn't concentrate on the psychological concept of the story at all. The main thing in all King's stories, no wonder why final scenes just comes from nowhere and looks totally fake. Carrie wasn't established as a character who could actually go to the point of madness. They didn't ha- they did they didn't gave <laughs> they didn't gave any kind of story of early life, and her psychological condition is never really described that well. All the performances sucked. Her going crazy and killing all the people is extremely unsatisfying, mostly because you don't care about any of these characters due to the shitty character development. You don't hate them. You don't like them. You just don't care. Music is extremely out of balance. None of the scenes had proper music and slow-mo or no sound effects were completely useless and ruined all the (laughs) atmosphere there could possibly exist. They completely missed the point with this one, and I can't even begin to imagine why so many people like this abomination. Stay away from it. Go read a book. Yes, I said it. It's not that good like some others, but it's something. It's something. Well, I can understand not enjoying some of the 70s aspects of the movie. Some of that hasn't really aged that well. It's very dated. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. But I think if you're not willing to look past some of those things to to find the cinematic experience underneath those dated attributes of when it was made, you're kind of hustling backwards when you're talking about love and cinema. Yeah. Because there's so many great films that are made in an archaic style that are still amazing. And I think Metropolis is a great film, even though it's silent. Like, you can still enjoy that film today, but a lot of people won't even give it a chance because of how old it is and because it's made like a silent movie. Yeah, doesn't I won't mean, give it a chance. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's not great entertainment. Just some people, they can't see past that kind of experience. And that's okay. It, it, it's not for some people. It's just not. You know? Yeah. I mean, you might watch Metropolis and be like, that was a waste of my time. Well, you're an RTF major, so. So, yeah, yeah. You can say I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> I haven't been an RTF major in 20 years. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's going to end our show. So, uh, Meredith, what are your socials? Oh, I guess that's not the end of the show. Now, is it? Wow. 
Uh, so, of course, Carrie came out in 76, where Roger Ebert was very much alive and America's top critic. So, of course, he did review the film. Do you think he liked it? Yes. Yes, he did like it. He gave it a three and a half stars. That's good. Yeah, it, it is pretty solid. Ebert says, Brian De Palma's Carrie is an absolute spellbinding horror movie with a shock at the end. That's the best thing along those lines since the shark leaped aboard in Jaws. It's also, and this is what makes it so good, an observant human portrait. The girl Carrie isn't another stereotype product of the horror production line. She's a shy, pretty, and complicated high school senior, like a lot of kids we once knew. There is a difference, though. She has telekinesis, the ability to manipulate things without touching them. It's a power that came upon her gradually and was released in response to the shrill religious fantasism of her mother. It manifests itself in small ways. She looks in a mirror, and it breaks, then it mends itself. Her mother tries to touch her and is hurled back against the couch, and then on prom night. Well, what makes the movie's last 20 minutes so riveting is that they grow so relentlessly, so inevitably, out of what's gone before. This isn't a science fiction movie with a tacked-on crisis, but a study of a character we know and understand. When she fully uses, or is used by, her strange power, we know why. This sort of narrative development hasn't exactly been De Palma's strong point. But here, he exhibits a gift for painting personalities. What we didn't know De Palma ordinarily so flashy on the surface could go so deep. Part of his success is a result of a very good performance by Sissy Spacek as Carrie and by Piper Laurie as Carrie's mother. They form a closed-off, claustrophobic household. The mother has transplanted her own psychotic fear of sexuality into a twisted personal religion. She punishes the girl constantly, locks her in the closet with the statues of a horribly bleeding Christ. Ah, see, he missed St. Sebastian, too. And refuses to let her develop normal friendships. That's the advantage of a, of a Catholic upbringing. Mm-hmm. Back to Ebert. At school, then, it's no wonder Carrie is so quiet. She has long, blonde hair, but wears it straight and uses it mostly to hide her face. She sits in the back of the room, doesn't speak up much, and is the easy butt of jokes by her classmates. Meanwhile, the most popular girl in the class devises a truly cruel trick to play on Carrie. It depends on Carrie being asked to the senior prom by a popular girl's equally popular boyfriend. He's one of our average Adonises, with letters in every sport. He's not in on the joke, though, and asks Carrie in all seriousness. And then De Palma gives us a marvelously realized scene at the prom. When Carrie does indeed turn out to be beautiful, there's a little something wrong, though, and De Palma has an effective way to convey it. As Carrie and her date dance, the camera moves around them, romantically at first, and then too fast, as if they're spinning out of control. I wouldn't want to spoil the movie's climax for you by even hinting at what happens next, but just let me say that Carrie is a true horror story, not a manufactured one, made up of some spare parts from old Vincent Price classics, but a real one, in which a horror grows out of the characters themselves. The scariest horror stories, the ones by M.R. James, Edgar Allan Poe, and Oliver Onions, are like this. They develop their horrors out of the people they observe. What happens here, too, does it ever. Nice. Yeah, I, I think Ebert puts it pr- pretty well, to be honest. He, he, he might, does. Yeah, he liked the movie more than I did. So. <laughs> hey, it's a classic for a reason. I, there, there's no doubting that in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I wonder it, what it is about the book that De Palma found fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it, it, it's certainly not the kind of story he had told before. At the end of the day, this is a story about a young girl menstruating and the stresses that come from that, granted, they're a little bit more than normal. Simplizing it. Yeah. (laughs) But it is a story written by a man and directed by a man. So, I mean, not not a single woman really took any part of that level of the creative process until you get to the acting. So I think that's another odd part of this tale as well. Yeah, there's a lot of estrogen in this movie. Yeah, and like I said, directed by, by a dude and written by one. So I think that's something we can look forward towards next week. When we have uh, Kimberly Price, or pardon me, Kimberly Pierce, she directed Boys Don't Cry, and she will direct the 2013 remake and try to give a bit more of a female perspective. So that's a tease for next week, guys. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you'd like more information about that or just want to get in touch with us anyway, there's a couple ways to do that. A couple ways to do that. The most 90s way being to hit us up at grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. And uh, you can let us know anything there, ask us any question, or make any kind of request for an episode if you'd like. And you can also do that at grittyreboot 
at Instagram and TikTok. We're there on both sites. And you can find me, uh, Pedro, on, at Illusionist13 on Twitter. I'm there occasionally, and uh, we'll respond to any message I get, unless it's, you know, someone spam me something. But Meredith, what are your socials? I just have Facebook, and I will say that I am getting some odd um, friend requests from around the world. Oh, okay. That's strange. <laughs> yeah. It, listen, it happens. And I think I logged into Facebook for, I had a project that I needed uh, a Facebook login for. So I had to log in for the first time in like three years. And I had like 40 friend requests, people I didn't know. So <laughs> I was like, uh, and I rejected them all. Except for the one person I did know. And I'm pretty sure they sent that request like two years ago. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they'd, they'd updated their Facebook in a year. So I was like, all right, well, it's over. But yeah, that's it, guys. So yeah, we just did Carrie this week. Uh, come back next week. We'll do all the reboots in one episode. And hopefully things go pretty well for us. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, you guys have a good week. Happy birthday. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to any listener who's having a birthday this week. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs>